When you think of the Falklands, chances are the first thing you think of is war. They took off from airfields in southern Argentina, equipped with Exocet missiles. Both ships were hit. Sir Galahad was immediately in flames. Maybe Margaret Thatcher? We come to talk to the people here, to pay tribute to those who liberated the islands. Maybe the British Empire. Maybe Gibraltar comes to mind. Maybe you remember watching the conflict unfold on your television screen, seeing British forces fight to defend a small, rugged landscape 8,000 miles away. But there's a lot more to the Falkland Islands than 74 days of conflict 40 years ago. The story of the islands, and of the islanders themselves, is rich, unique, and sometimes strange. The conflict, while a small part of the island's history, marks a turning point for the Falklands, a point that creates a duality, a before and after, a rural difficult life, transforming into one of relative prosperity for its inhabitants. Since then, the way of life for Falkland Islanders has forever changed. You're listening to The Falklands Way of Life, a short podcast series produced by Falkland Islands Television. I'm your host, Charles Kershaw, and in this short series I explore the lives of inhabitants living in the remote British Overseas Territory and how life has changed over the past 200 years. This is The Falklands Way of Life. The Falklands, they got their own personality, if you like. I have good memories of that time. Our standards of living were lower then, but I think generally people probably um, appreciated what they had. We're going to have to accept the fact there's going to be a new Falklands. We cannot stay an anachronism, and we're achieving that now. All the change, pretty much, has been for the better in my, my eyes. The year is 1842. Thomas Yates, a British man from Liverpool, is a bricklayer. He and his wife Margaret join Richard Moody, the first ever governor of the Falklands, aboard the ship that will take them to the other end of the world. They are most likely hoping to improve their prospects, for both them and for their three children. The Falkland Islands has a surprisingly long history. It was first landed on by English Captain John Strong in 1690, while en route to Peru and Chile. But the islands remained uninhabited until 1764, when French Captain Louis Antoine de Bougainville established the Port Louis settlement on East Falkland. However, its history as a permanently settled society, with its own way of living, really begins after 1833, when an Argentinian garrison was expelled from the islands and British rule was consolidated over the archipelago. The Falklands sort of, they got their own personality, if you like. It was more about life in the Falklands than, than implanting UK life in the Falklands, although, of course, it was still terribly British. I'm talking with fifth-generation islander and local historian Joan Spruce about the first British settlers to the islands that arrived after 1833. I think life was pretty, pretty tough to begin with for early settlers. I, I expect like anybody else in Australia or America or Canada because um, particularly those people who'd um, been granted land for farms I mean, they really had to build from scratch, build from absolutely nothing. They had to find a, a harbour, for a safe harbour for ships to come in. There had to be peat, there had to be a water supply. Um, as to why did people come? Um, perhaps life wasn't so good in their own country. Perhaps they had a sense of adventure. 
Um, and I know <coughs> ex-military people were, were encouraged to come out like Chelsea pensioners. There weren't pensioners in age. I think there were pensioners because they'd done their time with the, with the military. So they were encouraged to come and given their house and their, their plot of land. And it was hoped that they would set up businesses. Um, also, as a small Royal Marine unit that, that came as well for the, for the same sort of reasons, really, to, to populate the place, to, um, to be out on parade days, on special days with their, with their uniform. Um, they didn't all stay, um, but a lot of them did, and a lot of them have descendants here um, now. So, uh, so I guess it was a sense of adventure. Sometimes sailors jumped ship and hid out until the ship had sailed, and, and they uh, they settled down, got married, had family. The Falklands, an archipelago of 700 islands, is quite close to the bottom tip of South America, known as Cape Horn. Before the creation of the Panama Canal, ships were passed by Cape Horn to trade goods around the world. Private James Biggs, of the Royal Corps of Sappers and Miners, also arrived in the islands in 1842 with his wife and with Governor Moody, who he had served with previously in Gibraltar. The family first lived in Port Louis. At the time, the settlement of Port Louis only had a population of 62. They then came to the settlement of Port Stanley once it became the new capital. Today, the Biggs family has a large number of descendants in the islands. I'm Biggs on one side of the family and Felton on the other side. So, so and the Feltons came in 1849 and he came with the Chelsea pensioner lot um, and set off with eight small children. Imagine eight small children on a, on a ship coming all this way. Um, then they settled down and continued to produce more until they had 14. So we did a pretty good job of populating the place. For the early settlers, what would that lifestyle be like um, in terms of, you know, the diet, the, the style of dress and kind of the cultural influences? It was a sort of a um, British outpost? Yeah, very, very much the British, the British way of life, British rules and regulations and laws and so on. Men and women always wore hats. And it, even if they're out on a picnic, <clears throat> they would have the long dresses and hats and be beautifully, beautifully dressed. Diet was very much seasonal. When the geese and the ducks and the penguins were laying eggs, then, then you would collect those eggs. Um, when the geese, upland geese, were fat from eating the diddledee berries, that was the time to, to eat the goose. Although people weren't um, great fisher people, they would catch fish on, on rod and line. And also um, they would build fish, fish walls um, across a little creek. So when the tide came in, it brought the fish um, over the wall. You had, a, you had a, a thing like a gate set in the wall, a piece of corrugated iron. The fish would come in over the, over the gate into the wall and then when the tide went out, the fish would be left there. So you collected what you want, wanted, and then you lifted the gate up so they could, so they could escape. But um, not huge fish eaters, really. And of course, there was mutton, of course. People had to grow their own vegetables. 
they they made jam out of diddly berries and so on, there were tea berries. Um, so it was very much when things were in season. No deep freezers, of course. Pickled beef as well. That would keep for several months the beef and the eggs. So. Life for early settlers was pretty hard. Some, such as the Watsons, came as servants from Surrey, and it's believed they accepted three years of low wages once they arrived in the islands to pay for the cost of the passage to the Falklands. Accommodation was primitive, even for government officials. One magistrate, W.H. Moore, stated in 1845, I cannot be expected to take up my abode in one of the peat huts of the common fishermen and sailors. Governor Moody himself complained of living conditions at Government House in Port Louis, where two officials had no home during the winter than under an old boat. But over time, living conditions gradually improved as Stanley and other settlements expanded and grew. And in terms of making a living in the Falklands was pretty much everyone, you know, sheep farmers or cattle farmers at that time? Um, well, it started with the, with the wild cattle. Um, that it's, it's said that the French left uh, um, behind and when the French moved out, there was sort of nobody in charge, really, so the cattle all built up into great numbers. And the administration here wanted to utilise the, the cattle and so they could send the, the salted hides back to the UK and they could salt beef and, and sell to Stanley and sell to passing ships. And then I think it was realised that actually you could make more money from wool. So the cattle were virtually killed off. Although they were, they were kept for milk cows and, and so on. And then sheep were introduced, so it was wool. Going on at the same time, really, ship repair trade. So uh, it was quite a bit going on at the time. But it was really just wool for a very, very long time. Sheep wool was crucial to the island's economy for a good portion of the island's history. It kick-started economic growth in the islands when the Falkland Islands Company took over Lafone's enterprise in 1851. Farms initially sheared sheep using hand shears, similar in size and shape to gardening shears. This was tough and slow work. Farms began to switch over to machine shears in 1897, with the last farm abandoning hand shears in 1965. In terms of leisure activities, because obviously there wasn't much infrastructure here, they didn't have a cinema or a leisure centre, <laughs> what, what would people do for fun? Well, in Stanley, sport, sport always played a, quite a big part. I'm not sure when football started, horse racing, um, that was at Christmas really. It was almost sort of called a harvest festival, so that really um, came from the UK lifestyle because we weren't harvesting anything at the, at the time. So, um, so there were race, races in Stanley, races around the camp. People would all congregate on one farm and have a truly good time. People were fairly musical. Um, they played violins, mostly accordions, um, the old squeeze box thing. I think my dad's, of, of lots of people playing accordions, I think perhaps my father's generation was some of the last generation who, who played. But on the, on the farms, later on, there were 
Horse racing is still a very popular pastime, especially in camp, which is the name given to all of the area outside of the current capital, Stanley. Horse races are held every year at Stanley Racecourse on Boxing Day. They're called the Boxing Day Races. And dances remain popular as well, with the May Ball being one of the most famous and one of the most popular. People were fairly well in touch with what was going on in the outside world. Internally, each farm had its own small um, small boat. Uh, and so they, they would come to town, they would go between islands and so on. So from the period of 1842, when Governor Moody landed with some of the first British settlers, and the Falklands really started to become what it is today. The Falklands developed its own society, its own culture and, and customs, similar but distinct to British life. At the same time, despite the successes of the wool industry, in the years following on from the Second World War in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the islands were struggling to sustain themselves. Stanley wasn't making any money, so to speak. The sheep and the wool carried the Falklands for good good number of years. Various other um, projects were tried, but for one reason or another, they, they didn't actually work very well. But despite the population slowly declining through the 60s and 70s, there were many who chose to stay, many who had a certain fondness for the way of life, and still look back fondly on the years leading up to 1982. Next time on the Falcons' Way of Life, I will be talking to some of those who lived in the islands before the 1982 war and understand why they stayed. There was a, a strong sort of trickle of people leaving the islands. I find four weeks in the UK was enough for me. I was waiting to come home again. But this is my home, absolutely. Really, we, we quite enjoyed the lifestyle. I just liked it. It was like, as I say, it was, to me, it was an adventure.